As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, I already hear pages turning. Thrills my heart. If you'd like to read with me, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew in chapter 27. Matthew 27. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know it's true that the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word of yours is is true, and it is the good news that is preached to us. Help us to hear these things as they are, to understand them and to believe them as good news that comes from you. Help us to remain in your word that we would abide in you. Guide us now by your spirit. Give us light to see and hearts to believe. We ask this in in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 27. We'll pick up uh, where we left off last week. So we'll begin here in verse 45 uh, and read on a good number of verses. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And some of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This is the word of God. Now, we're in this particular text because we are working our way up to the resurrection of Easter, but we're not there yet. One of the more difficult parts, at least for me, about preaching God's word is not trying to figure out what to say from the text, but 
it's harder to figure out what not to say from the text. There's just a lot that could be said about these things. And so in avoiding or, or not mentioning things, it's not because I'm trying to be diplomatic or delicate or trying to please people. It's just because there's just simply not enough time in one sitting for all of this, especially true in this scene. It is so rich here with vivid details and deeply theological, true, important things that even if we had all day, nothing else to do but just sit and talk with a bottomless cup of coffee, we would still barely enter the front hallway of the mansion that the cross of Christ is. So today, we will not even get to the rooms of the tearing of the temple curtain, the earthquake that splits the rocks. We won't, we won't get to the rising and appearing of many, many of the dead saints in Jerusalem. We won't get to the, you know, even the climactic profession of faith from, from the Roman centurion where he says, truly this man Jesus is the son of God. I would love to get to explore all of those things, but, but we just can't, at least not, not today. And, and as much as it pains me to have to leave those behind today, It pains me much more to have to take up the part of the scene that we will focus upon. It's coming already. Fair warning. This is some heavy lifting. And it's going to be heavy for me too. If we were to take all four of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and put them together into one single narrative in, in what's called a harmony, and pull them together in their comparative accounts of the crucifixion. If we were to do that together, we would hear Jesus speaking on the cross seven distinct times. Historically, these have been called the seven sayings of Jesus on the, on the cross. We won't talk about them all, but the, the final one, the seventh one, is recorded in Luke where Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. Matthew refers to that cry in verse 50. But he doesn't actually give us the words. It just says that Jesus cried out again and then yielded up his spirit. Matthew, the gospel writer that we're reading in today, records only one actual saying from Jesus' lips on the cross. It's the same saying that Mark records, and it's just four words in the Hebrew and the Aramaic, but they are sobering words. And so I approach these things with a good measure of trepidation and trembling. We hear them in verse 46. I'll read again. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
These are the words of our Lord Jesus that hang over us now. And our task today is to try to understand what they mean. We know in the text, some of the bystanders of the cross that were listening did not understand Jesus correctly. They thought by Eli, he was calling for Elijah, that Old Testament prophet. And so there's several verses after about this whole rigmarole where they're trying to fetch this wine vinegar to give to Jesus that seems to try to extend his life a little bit longer to see if Elijah's actually going to show up to save Jesus here, but, but Matthew, the author, doesn't want us as the reader to make the same sort of mistake in understanding. Matthew gives us the original wording in their Hebrew and, and Aramaic, but then he gives us the translation of those things to make the meaning of them very, very clear. Jesus' cry is not to Elijah. He's crying to God. And Jesus is forsaken on the cross, not by family and friends, not by his followers, but by the Father himself. This is a call to God. Why have you forsaken me? And as horrific as the whole crucifixion is, This is the most horrific of it all, that Jesus would be forsaken by God. And I have to be honest with you here, I was dreading today. I'm not even going to make it to the end. I was dreading today, exhausted this week in my soul by having to ponder these words. I would love to be able to skip this and just cut straight to the resurrection. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Uh, But that's not the way things work. This moment is hard to watch, and yet we dare not look away. This is not just like a train wreck that we, that we stare at with some sort of morbid fascination. We're not, we're not gawkers here. We are believers. And as believers in Jesus, we must see this. This is what Jesus came for. Jesus came not just to be resurrected, but to die. And not only to die, but to die forsaken. So as we pull in close to this, we have to bow our heads and yet look at what our Lord and King endures. We must behold him here in his full forsakenness through the most mind-bending, heart-wrenching, stomach-turning moment in all of history. This moment 
is mind-bending. Because of the way Jesus often and fully spoke of his union with the Father. That Jesus truly said things like, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus also said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There is a mutual indwelling between God the Father and Christ the Son. They have a unique unity that goes beyond the unity of any other two relationships that we know. That is, their unity is greater than the sort of loving attachment that happens between parent and child. Their unity is greater than the sort of intimate closeness that happens between a husband and a wife. It's even greater than the genetic match that comes with identical twins. Jesus both is with God and is God. The three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are eternally one God in perfect divine harmony and union from before the dawn of time. So, so it is fitting to speak of the Father and of Jesus in a sense as both they and he who are one. And yet as mind-bending as it is to delve the depths of how the Trinity can be three in one, the cry of the cross dives even deeper still we would crumble to fathom how in the midst of their eternal divine union, how God the Father could even forsake God the Son. And yet here it is. This is a truth that transcends our logic and, and pushes beyond our bounds. It, it boggles our mind even here to know that Jesus is not just feeling forsaken by God, as we might sometimes feel. Perhaps many or even all of us know that feeling of forsakenness. We hear it from various people in various forms throughout the scriptures, from the prayers of you know, David and Job and, and Naomi. We hear, and the, the Christian might also cry, Oh God, why are you so far from me? Do you know what that's like? And yet in spite of, of feeling forsaken, even in the midst of the silence of God, the Lord is still there. He's promised to us, and we've returned to it again and again, that I will never leave you, never forsake you, never. So we are able to say with confidence, even when he feels far, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear. That's true of us, and yet that is not, not what's happening here with Jesus. This is not just a feeling of forsakenness that needs to realign with reality. This is the reality. Jesus here is really forsaken by his own Father, with whom he is one. 
It's mind-bending. It's also heart-wrenching. You know, because even though this goes beyond the feeling of these things, that does not mean it is without feeling. You can hear, I'm sure, the agony in Jesus' voice as he cries out. You know, I know that this here is just a matter of opinion, but I have often called these words of Jesus in his forsakenness the saddest words in the whole Bible. The saddest. The second saddest in the Bible, at least I think so, come from, from King David when he learns about the death of his estranged son, Absalom. And when he hears the news, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 18, this is what he says. He says, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, my son, my son Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, you can feel the pain. David's loss even carries the added baggage of this complex, painful relationship with his own child. There was lots of sin caught up in the both of them and between them, so this death here of his son is also loaded with feelings of regret and bitterness and guilt, and the whole thing comes crashing down, leaving David melted in a puddle of grief. The degree, the degree of sadness is often measured by the size of the loss. David's loss here is great. We maybe have great losses of our own. Marriage that shatters in divorce. Friendships that turn sour the death of a child. All those things are, are great and terrible sadness because the size of the loss is so great. And we know all sadness is significant no matter what size it is. It's not about who has the bigger loss. There's not a sadness competition to compare whose is greater. But it is worth noting here that even our greatest sadness that seems too much to bear, even those are but pebbles next to the rock that crushed Christ. Our God is infinite. He has no ends, no edges, which means that none can measure the greatness of the unity between God the Father and God the Son. That unity stretches beyond the very edges of our solar system. It burns hotter than the very core of the sun. It runs deeper than 10,000 oceans. And so when that infinite union turns to forsakenness. The infinite loss is beyond imagination. This is heart 
wrenching sadness beyond what we can carry. Some people do not know what to do with sadness, either their own or other, sadness of any capacity. For some people, sadness makes us uncomfortable, so we have this need, this compulsion to try to fix it. And so some people here would point out that in Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? that Jesus is quoting the opening line of Psalm 22. That's a psalm that, that begins with this agony of felt forsakenness, but ends in triumphant praise. And so some people would say, oh, in, this, in these words, there's partly words of victory. And, and I suppose that is true of the psalm. And Matthew, even the author, is, is kind of moving us as a reader toward the direction of praise and victory, but none of that takes away from the heart-wrenching reality of the forsakenness now. If Jesus wanted to just speak about the hope that's going to come after the cross, he could have cited any other psalm. Even the words of the very next psalm, Psalm 23, which opens, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want and says the words that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. With me. But that's not the word that Jesus speaks here. He doesn't speak that God is with him. Instead, we hear his cry, My God, why have you forsaken me? The worst part of it all, let me just load you all up here, mind-bending, heart-wrenching, the worst part that's really the most stomach-turning of this. What makes it stomach-turning is not because the father was wrong to forsake the son. The father is not wrong here. The father is not unjust or unloving here. In fact, it is because of the Father's love and justice, both for us and for the Son, that he forsakes, forsakes his Son, Jesus. The reason why this is stomach-turning is because of the answer to the question Jesus asks. He knows the answer already, but he cries it out. Why? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is because of sin because of our sin. The forsakenness of Jesus is the product of the stomach-turning horrors of sin. So on the cross, the sinless Jesus willingly became our sin for us. On the tree, he became the very curse for us. And as that sinful curse, Jesus bore the wrath of God. Which means that the worst part of Jesus' crucifixion were not the nails, 
not the wounds, not the blood. It's not all the the mockeries and shame he had to receive that was put upon him. It's not even the death that comes at the end of it. At his death, that's when he commits his spirit into the hands of his father again. The worst part of it is the span of time between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, or from noon to three, when the darkness of God's forsakenness shrouded the cross. And the black of that darkness is too dark for us to see all of it, which perhaps is a small kindness to it to us that we cannot see it all. But from here, we can see just the very edge of the bottomless chasm of hell itself. We can hear here the muffled whispers of that outer darkness, that weeping and gnashing of teeth. We can smell the smoke and the sulfur of it all. What is happening here is hell itself and just a whiff of it is enough to sicken. You may sometimes hear people say, people say in passing of their own experiences, you know, oh, that was, that was hell. Or, or that place was God forsaken. Or that thing was, was God damned. Put those words out of your mouth. Do not demean the horrors of this reality. To speak so flippantly about things like that are like comparing a paper cut to the amputation of an arm. These things are not even on the same plane. True damnation of hell is not just little red devils running around with mischief and poking folks with pitchforks. It's not even just miserable people left to their own misery forever. The damnation of hell is the forsakenness of God. To be forsaken by God is not just that he removes all of his presence and leaves us alone. To be forsaken by God is him removing his good pleasure so that all that remains is his rumbling, relentless wrath upon sin. So listen, do not allow yourself to believe that your own sin is small. Or no big deal. Or not really hurting anybody. Sin is wicked. And all sin against God is a stomach-turning horror that is unfit to even speak of. So we can see here the effects of our own sin on the cross. 
if we could stand to look at it. Do you see why I dreaded this week? Heavy. For me too. It's heavy. This hellish forsakenness of Jesus bends the mind and wrenches the heart and turns the stomach. It is crushing, and yet, this is the very thing that gives hope to the Christian. For someone who's not a Christian, for someone who does not put faith and trust in Jesus, there is still a lot to fear. Because apart from Jesus, that person is still in sin and still under the very wrath of God. There's a glimpse of eternity in this cry of forsakenness that ought to send shudders down our spine. And if anyone here does not believe, let me call you now. Please seek the Lord while he may be found. Come to Jesus. He will receive you. He is the Savior of sinners. We know for the Christian, the cry of Jesus is hope because it is also this display of the immensity of God's love. We know our sin has filled the cup of God's righteous wrath. And it is the will of God and the willingness of Jesus that Jesus would drink that cup of wrath for us. He swallows it down to the very dregs. There is not a drop of wrath left for us to drink. It is finished. When Jesus drinks that cup of wrath, he doesn't just leave us empty. Then Jesus gives us a new cup to drink. The cup that we drink is the cup of the new covenant. The cup of Jesus' blood, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sin. The cup of, of communion, that is of, of union with each other, and more importantly, union with God. So as we're about to receive this together, remember and believe this. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we could be reunited to God. Pray with me. Oh Lord, how heavy these things are. They are too much for us to carry, but we, we praise you for the gift of your great grace and love towards sinners like us that you would stand in our place. Lord, as we're about to receive the Lord's Supper, would you set aside these things as holy? We know that you are not physically present with us here, but you are spiritually present. You've, you've not forsaken us. You are really, truly here. You are, you are with us. So Lord, would you sustain us now? Sustain us in our faith by your power that you would be praised forever. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.